Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Parel for Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. It's entitled, Iowa Legislature Session Gets Started. Lawmakers Promise Tax Cuts Grieve Over Perry. It's written by Caleb McCullough, Aaron Murphy, and Tom Barton of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa's majority Republicans promised steep tax cuts and a continuation of their conservative agenda as they gaveled in for the first day of the 2024 legislative session on Monday. Republican and Democratic leaders made opening speeches laying out their priorities for the session. Republican leaders in the House and Senate promised to accelerate income tax cuts they passed in 2022 and expand business opportunities in the state. Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver, a Republican from Grimes, compared Iowa's policies and fiscal standing to those in neighboring Democrat-run states Minnesota and Illinois. Whitver also highlighted Iowa's fiscal health, noting the $2.1 billion state general fund budget surplus, which is projected to grow to $3.1 billion in the next fiscal year, plus another $3.7 billion in the state's taxpayer relief fund. Whitver reiterated the call to accelerate the recent income tax cuts and pledged to reduce the number of state boards and commissions, a process already underway after it was included in Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' state government reorganization plan and studied by a legislative committee. The goal is to make government more efficient and help Iowans get to work faster, Whitver said. In one sentence, here's the plan cut taxes, control spending, reform government, and let Iowans be great. Let's get to work. Iowa Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum, a Democrat from Dubuque, described the principles that will guide the Senate Democrats' work during the 2024 session. For every item that comes across our desk this session, we're going to ask three questions. Does it create more opportunity for Iowans? Does it ensure freedom for Iowans? Does it provide more accountability for Iowans, Yoakum said. If the answer is yes, Senate Democrats are ready to work with Republican colleagues to get it done. If the answer is no, we're going to fight like heck against it and let the people of Iowa know why. Beyond tax cuts, Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said lawmakers would look at improving public safety and reviewing standards of both lower and higher education in the state. Grassley doubled down on House Republicans' efforts to remove books with sexual content from public schools and said Republicans may pass additional legislation to clarify or expand the existing law. In December, a federal judge temporarily blocked a law passed last year, Senate File 496, that banned books with any of a list of sex acts from public schools and prohibited teaching about gender identity and sexual orientation before seventh grade. It should have been an easy policy for schools to implement, but instead some schools chose to politicize this issue, and if we need to pass additional legislation this session, we will, Grassley said. House Democratic leader Jennifer Confirst of Windsor Heights appealed to Republicans to work with Democrats on policy to address the needs of Iowans rather than pass bills approved and drafted solely by Republicans. The lawmaking process is generally dominated by Republicans who hold a strong majority in both chambers of the legislature. Democrats are generally not involved in drafting and making changes to bills even when they are bipartisan. Instead of going to our corners all the time, let's take some time to come together, Confirst said. 
let's take some time to not just a bipartisan vote on the board, but draft bipartisan policy that includes the input of 36 people in this chamber. How about this year, the fact that Democrats introduce a bill doesn't mean it's a bad idea automatically out of the gate, she said. What matters most is that we build policies that Iowans will recognize and have better lives because of. We're here to serve Iowans. At a Republican breakfast reception before the session, speaker after speaker touted delivering a conservative agenda that includes lowering taxes, providing taxpayer funding for families to pay for private school expenses, and strengthening parental involvement and steering away from progressive social issues in school curriculum related to instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation. I could not be more proud of the accomplishments that we've achieved since we were able to achieve the trifecta, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said at the event. You know collectively, you truly are making a difference for Iowans and the policies and most importantly, the results have captured America's attention from tax cuts to cutting government and red tape to growing the economy. We saw nearly $4 billion of capital investment in our state last year in 2023. From educational freedom to universal school choice to protecting life, this Republican team has delivered time and time again on the promises that we made to Iowans. Reynolds urged lawmakers to continue to challenge the status quo and continue to empower Iowans and really continue to maintain, I think, the bold and decisive leadership that Iowans have truly come to expect from our Republican leaders. We're excited about this next legislative session, she said. We got a great story to tell. We got a lot of to be proud of, and we do have more work to do. Leaders took a moment of silence and expressed their grief over a shooting at a high school in Perry last week that left 11-year-old Amir Jolief dead and seven others injured. Grassley highlighted it as part of Republicans' commitment to improving public safety, while Democrats said the shooting shows the need for stronger gun control measures. Iowa high school students in the Des Moines Metro planned a walkout Monday to protest at the Capitol to demand stronger gun laws. People choose Iowa because our state is viewed as safe. So when we see these senseless acts of violence in our own home state, in our own schools, it shakes us to the core, Grassley said. In Iowa, every parent should be able to send their kids to school and trust that they should return home safely. Grassley did not say new gun restrictions would be on the list of policy responses to the shooting. Instead, he said Republicans would invest in school security, prioritize school resource officers, invest in children's mental health, and teach resilience over victimhood. He also connected the push for safety in schools to Republicans' efforts to prohibit books with sexual content from school libraries. Democrats also called for action in response to the shooting, including stricter gun control measures. There is no pain like the pain of losing a child, Yoakum said. In our grief, though, you must also ask tough questions and acknowledge hard truths. How do we tame violence in our country? Violence that touched East High School here in Des Moines less than two years ago, and now Perry. The truth is we must address gun safety. We must find a solution to gun violence, Yoakum continued. No child should go to school fearing for their lives, but today millions do. Gun safety should not be a partisan issue. Protecting kids should not be a partisan issue. It's time for us senators to come together to find real solutions. Whitver praised law enforcement officials and emergency responders who acted during the shooting. He appeared to indicate Senate Republicans will not be considering gun safety legislation. 
While we can't legislate away evil and get rid of all the bad things in this world, we will keep our thoughts and prayers with those in Perry as we move forward and put in place policies to make our state better and stronger, Whitver said. It is impossible to find words to appropriately convey the sorrow and the sympathy we have to the victims of the shooting, but the people of Perry should know that we share in their grief and support them at this time. Reynolds said lawmakers would work with the community as it continues to heal. We continue every day to keep the families of the victims in the Perry community in our prayers, Reynolds said. We'll continue to work with the community to make sure that they have the whole government behind them as we work through this heartbreaking time in our state's history. Next is a story entitled Hot Button Issues Resurface in Iowa Legislature. It's written by Tom Barton of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa Republicans last year used their expanded legislative minorities or majorities, excuse me, to push through a trove of priorities over the objections of Democrats, passing reforms ranging from restricting access to abortion to how students are educated and private schools are funded to how state government is run. The bills that would restrict teen access to social media, limit local government's use of traffic enforcement cameras, protect access to abortion under the Iowa Constitution, and further loosen Iowa's guns laws, among others, stalled. Here's a look at the hot-button issues likely to resurface during this year's Iowa legislative session, which began Monday. Lawmakers last year passed a new law which remains tied up in court during a rare special session that would ban most abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. As the case continues, abortion in Iowa remains legal up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. Republican leaders said they do not plan to take further action to restrict abortion until the courts rule on the law. Republicans have also banned an effort to pass an amendment to the state's constitution that would declare Iowa does not recognize a fundamental right to an abortion. Lawmakers have approved the proposed amendment once. To revive it, they would need to pass it again in 2024 and put it to a public vote. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver, a Republican from Grimes, said the Iowa Supreme Court's 2022 decision reversing a fundamental right to an abortion negates the need for a constitutional amendment. And so, until the ruling comes out on the current fetal heartbeat abortion bill, it's really just a wait and see, Whitfer said. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, said Democrats will continue to push legislation that would enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. The effort is unlikely to advance in the GOP-controlled Iowa House and Senate, but is among key pieces of legislation House Democrats introduced last year to draw a contrast with the majority party. What we're interested in doing is providing reproductive freedom for all women, Confirst said, and so we'll continue to push for that. Republicans, meanwhile, are trying to ban abortion in our Constitution, and so it couldn't be clearer who's fighting for women's reproductive freedom and who isn't. Senate Republicans did not take up a bill advanced last year by House Republicans that would further loosen Iowa's gun laws including allowing gun owners to have a firearm in a locked vehicle on school and college grounds. House File 654 also would prohibit insurance companies from refusing to insure Iowa schools that choose to have armed staff on school grounds. Democrats and gun safety advocates said the bill would 
perpetuate ongoing gun violence in the state and put children at risk by loosening lax Iowa gun laws and allowing firearms to become even more accessible in locations that are targets for mass shootings. A sixth grader was killed and five others were wounded by a 17-year-old suspect in a shooting at Perry High School and Middle School. Advocates said the measure enhances the ability of lawful gun owners to protect and defend themselves and their families and that they should not be forced to leave a defensive firearm at home because they have to drop off or pick up a student at school. House Majority Leader Matt Winschittle, Republican from Missouri Valley, said Senate Republicans expressed concerns over the insurance provisions in the bill. The Spirit Lake and Cherokee school districts rescinded policies last summer allowing trained staff to carry guns within the schools to avoid being dropped by their insurance carrier after attempts to find other insurers failed. District officials cited the 2022 mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas as one of the reasons for wanting to arm staff. The district's insurance carrier, EMC Insurance Company, said it it ensures districts that provide qualified law enforcement officers in schools, but that coverage does not extend to armed teachers or school staff. Windschittle said House Republicans have talked with Senate Republicans about possibly amending the bill to address the insurance concerns. Windschittle said a potential compromise may be to have the state assume liability in the event a teacher or staff member authorized to carry a firearm by an Iowa school district unlawfully shoots someone on school grounds. Confirst, the House Democratic leader said with an increase in school shootings with increased concerns about school safety, it is not the right time to allow more guns or more firearms on school campuses. Lawmakers last session advanced but failed to approve limits on social media platforms for teens. Iowa teens would have been prevented from using the platforms without approval from a parent or guardian under a measure that advances out of a House committee but failed to make it to the House floor. The bill would prohibit companies from collecting data on children under the age of 18 without verifiable parental consent. That includes providing information required to create a profile on sites like TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook. Similar age limitations signed into law in Arkansas and Utah have raised questions about the privacy and First Amendment rights of young Americans. Critics worry restricting children's access to social media restricts their access to supportive communities. Some children, like LGBTQ teens, may find a sense of belonging online, they said. But supporters say they're concerned about social media's effect on kids' mental health. Representative John Wills, a Republican from Spirit Lake and the bill's floor manager, has said lawmakers plan to revisit the issue this session. Confirst said House Democrats oppose a statewide ban on social media for children under the age of 18, and it should be something that parents are entrusted to monitor and control. Social media can provide great opportunities for organizing, for communicating, for learning, and so let's teach students how to effectively and safely use social media and the internet rather than just taking it away and hoping they won't use it, she said. Iowa lawmakers likely will again try to regulate Iowa's city's use of automated traffic enforcement cameras. They've been trying for more than a decade to restrict the use of the devices that capture video of vehicles speeding or running red lights. I don't know where it will go, but there will be a conversation about it, Whitver said. 
Whitver said there seems to be a broad consensus among GOP lawmakers of wanting to regulate them a little bit more, and we probably don't need as many traffic cameras as we have in Iowa, and they continue to expand. Cedar Rapids installed its first speeds camera in 2010. As of March 2022, at least 19 Iowa cities and towns operated automatic traffic enforcement systems, including Sioux City, Cedar Rapids, Davenport, Muscatine, Council Bluffs, Waterloo, LeClaire, Strawberry Point, Hudson, Chester, Buffalo, Miles, Independence, and Old Wine, according to a Legislative Services Agency report. Marion added automatic traffic, automated traffic cameras in 2023. A bill advanced out of the Senate Subcommittee late in 2023 session that would have required cities and counties to gain approval from the Iowa Department of Transportation before placing traffic cameras. The Iowa DOT would be required to determine whether a system is appropriate and necessary and the least restrictive means to address the traffic safety issues at a location. The bill closely matched one in the House that passed out of committee earlier last year, but failed to make it to the floor. Lawmakers have floated several methods to regulate traffic enforcement cameras over the past several years, citing concerns about privacy and arguing some cities use them to drive revenue. Lobbyists representing cities and police organizations, including Cedar Rapids, argue the proposals would limit an important traffic safety tool that has proved effective in reducing traffic crashes. Democrats oppose the bill, saying they would impose burdensome regulations and take away an important revenue stream used to fund public safety. The LSA report estimated the Senate bill would lead an annual loss in revenue of nearly $3.3 million for the city of Cedar Rapids. The city of LeClaire would see an estimated $1.1 million annual loss. Davenport would see a $817,000 loss. Council Bluffs, $232,000. Muscatine, $190,000. And Sioux City, $80,000 in lost annual revenue. Senator Brad Zahn, a Republican from Urbandale who has pushed previous proposals to ban traffic cameras, said he plans to put forward a bill this session but would not provide details. Zahn said he's concerned by the proliferation of systems in smaller communities where there's not much traffic. I recognize the benefit of cameras monitoring the S-curve on Interstate 380 in Cedar Rapids because of the way it's constructed, but for the most part, I certainly think these have become more about revenue generators than public safety, he said. While Republican majorities unlikely the session mimic moves made in surrounding states easing restrictions on the possession and use of marijuana, supporters in Iowa see growing support. House Democrats last year introduced legislation that remains eligible for debate this session that would allow Iowans over the age of 21 to purchase marijuana for recreational use from a licensed retail store. Other provisions include decreasing penalties for marijuana possession and expunging records for non-violent marijuana convictions and expanding Iowa's medical cannabis program. A March 2021 Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll found more than half of Iowans surveyed, 54%, support legalizing marijuana for recreational use, and more than three-quarters support expanding the drug's use for medical purposes. In more news from the Iowa legislature, lawmakers may tighten the law over foreign farmland ownership address ag issues. This is written by Aaron Jordan and Brittany J. Miller of the Gazette. 
Iowa lawmakers say they expect to see bills in the upcoming legislative session to tighten state law on foreign ownership of farmland. Whether those proposals would remove exemptions for some foreign land buys, require more reporting by foreign and corporate entities, or push state agencies for more enforcement of farmland transaction is still uncertain. We don't have a caucus bill we're starting day one with, said Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver, a Republican from Grimes. But I do believe that is an issue our caucus is interested in, and I would suspect we'll see a bill at some point about foreign ownership of land. The Gazette interviewed legislative leaders, environmental groups, and other state house watchers about natural resources and agricultural legislation they expect to see during the 2024 legislative session. The hottest topics are about energy, pipelines, and farmland ownership. The issue of water quality may get limited exposure through a bill that seeks to relax restrictions on developers. Because Republicans have majorities in the Iowa Senate and House, GOP lawmakers will set the agenda on what bills will be considered. Foreign investment in Iowa farmland more than doubled in the last 10 years to nearly 514,000 acres in 2022, but Iowa still ranks in the bottom half of states for acres with foreign investment. Iowa's law governing foreign ownership of agricultural land is more is one of the strictest in the nation. More than 90% of foreign investment in Iowa farmland is for long-term leases, not land purchases for wind projects, a Gazette investigation showed. The top countries with investors who own or lease Iowa farmland are Canada, Italy, Portugal, and France, but that hasn't stopped fears about Chinese investors taking advantage of exceptions in Iowa law. If our law has loopholes in it as far as foreign ownership and things like that, we'd be willing to look at that, said Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford. House File 642, introduced last year, would let investors from allied foreign countries to buy agricultural land and get tax credits if they are willing to invest at least $1 billion to build a manufacturing or research facility in an approved mega or major economic growth attraction site. When I first heard this about a year ago, I was thinking over my dead body, said Senator Ken Rosenboom, a Republican from Oskaloosa, who is vice chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee. He's been concerned for nearly two years about foreign and corporate ownership of farmland and the shell companies that can be used to conceal ownership. Now that I know a little bit more about House File 642, there is an economic development component that has value. Representative J.D. Skolton, a Democrat from Sioux City, said he plans to introduce legislation to require more transparency of all agricultural land transactions. A Gazette investigation last year showed an investment arm of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints owns at least 22,000 acres of Iowa farmland, and a Tennessee family has bought at least 5,000 acres in northwest Iowa using at least 10 different names. On June 1st, Governor Kim Reynolds signed House File 617 into law, which requires an independent review of the Iowa Utilities Board responsibilities and procedures. The process would ensure the board furthers safe, adequate, reliable, and affordable utility services with non-discriminatory, just, and reasonable rates for Iowans. The Utilities Board hired a consulting company to do research, gather public comments, and produce a report to the legislature which it delivered December the 14th. 
Among its findings, the 200-plus page review calls for utilities to regulate, regularly update their long-term resource plans as markets, technology, and policies change, which would ultimately better inform the Iowa Utilities Board during rate-making decisions. It also recommends utilities periodically update their rates to reflect fluctuating costs of service. The review also proposes the board evaluate how spending caps enacted by the legislature in 2018 may limit utilities' energy efficiency and demand response programs. If invested in more, the program could help customers control their energy consumption and costs. During the upcoming session, the consultant will present its findings to the House Commerce Committee. The Iowa House last March passed a bill that would require companies wanting to build a carbon dioxide pipeline to get voluntary easements for 90% of the pipeline's route before being granted the right to force sale through eminent domain. Representative Jennifer Conferst, a Democrat from Des Moines, the House Minority Leader, said many Democrats would like to see the Iowa Senate consider House File 565 this session. Some of us were comfortable with the compromise bill passed in the House because it's a start, she said. But Whitmer said he doubts there is consensus among Republicans. We have some of the strongest eminent domain laws in the country right now, he said. There are people in our caucus all over the board. Some are very supportive of the pipeline, some that aren't as supportive of the pipeline. The Utilities Board now is considering a permit application by Summit Carbon Solutions to build a 2,000-mile carbon dioxide pipeline with nearly 700 miles of it in Iowa to transport carbon dioxide from ethanol plants to underground sequestration sites in North Dakota. Navigator Heartland Greenway decided in October to abandon its plan to build another pipeline because of an uncertain regulatory path in several states. Wolf Carbon Solutions, which has proposed a pipeline from ADM plants in Cedar Rapids and Clinton to a sequestration site in Illinois, continues to try to secure voluntary leases in Iowa and Illinois. Pipeline opponents on the political right and left have been vocal about their concerns about safety and the use of eminent domain for a private project. Last year marked the 10th anniversary of Iowa's nutrient reduction strategy, a two-pronged plan addressing nitrogen and phosphorus pollution in state waterways. Last spring, legislators slashed funding for a statewide network of water quality monitoring sensors. It's unclear what laws the legislature's Republican majority may enact this year related to water quality. Senator Annette Sweeney, a Republican from Alton, who is chair of the Senate's Natural Resources and Environment Committee, said she wants to continue funding water quality improvement projects like saturated buffers and bioreactors, but only if they're making an impact. First of all, I want to see progress, she said. What have we been doing with the money that we have been given? Now we turn to the opinion page and we've got another view from the Racine, Wisconsin Journal Times and it's entitled Bump Stock Ban Demands High Court OK. We can't undo the horror at Mandalay Bay, but we can prevent the next crazed shooting. Just after Christmas, attorneys general from 23 states in the District of Columbia urged the U.S. Supreme Court to uphold a federal rule banning bump stocks. We concur, and if the high court doesn't get it right, Congress should get to work and spell out the ban in a new law. 
The High Court agreed to take up the issue in November after differing lower court decisions over the ban, which was put in place by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives six years ago by then-President Donald Trump's administration. The ATFE bump stock ban went into effect after a mass shooting in Las Vegas, Nevada in 2017. You remember that, of course. A crazed gunman in the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel opened fire with bump stock equipped AR-15s on a crowd of 20,000 people attending a country music festival across the street. By the time the smoke had cleared and the screaming had stopped, 58 people were killed and an additional 500 were wounded or injured in the rush for cover. The gunman, Stephen Paddock, killed himself before he could be apprehended. The attorneys general told the court in their petition that the ban aligns with long-standing prohibitions dating to 1934 against public ownership of most machine guns and that bump stocks, which use the recoil of the weapon to rapidly fire without additional trigger pulls, belong in that category. Bump stocks were deliberately developed and marketed to circumvent federal law banning civilian use of automatic weapons, said District of Columbia Attorney General Brian L. Schwalb. These devices are designed to convert semi-automatic firearms to illegal machine guns with foreseeable tragic and deadly consequences. We urge the Supreme Court to prioritize public safety and the safety of law enforcement officers by upholding a reasonable, well-established rule classifying bump stocks as banned automatic weapons. We can't undo the horror and bloodletting at Mandalay Bay, but we can take steps to prevent the next crazed shooting by keeping the ban on bump stocks. If the Supreme Court can't see its way to support the ban, then Congress should step in and pass a single piece of legislation to enforce it. An exception may be needed for disabled hunters, but for the most part, no reasonable purpose justifies nearly full automatic firepower, not for hunting and not for self-protection. Consider that Paddock, at one point in the tower at Mandalay Bay, was able to fire 90 shots in a 10-second period using bump stocks. A machine gun can fire 98 shots in a 7-second period. There's not a deer herd or a concert crowd that can stand up to that rain of fire. The Supreme Court should get that. You are listening to the Council of Love's Daily Non-Parole on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we turn to today's obituaries, and first we remember Thomas Hugh O'Hara, age 67, who passed on December 31st, 2023 in Golden, Colorado. Memorial service will be held at 3 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Saturday, January the 13th, 2024. The family will receive friends during the hour prior to the service. The family will direct memorials. Next, we remember Faye Marie Cochran Ronk of Raymore, Missouri, who passed away on December the 28th, 2023. Memorials can be made to Holy Trinity Lutheran Church Music Slash Choir Fund or Project Linus at https www.projectlinus.org slash donate.php. Next, we remember Billy J. Sullivan, age 
85 of Council Bluffs, who passed away January 5th, 2024 at Jeannie Edmondson Hospital. Visitation with the family Tuesday, 5 to 7 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Wood Ring Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral service Wednesday, 11 a.m. at the funeral home. Interment Memorial Park Cemetery with a lunch following at the Walnut Hill Reception Center, 1350 East Pierce Street. Memorials are suggested to the American Cancer Society. Now we remember Deborah Lou Workus Carlson, age 67, of Council Bluffs, who passed away on January the 4th, 2024. Memorials are suggested to the National Alzheimer's Association in Deborah's name. Celebration of life service will be held at a later date. Now we remember Paul R. Rathman, age 83, who passed away at Nebraska Medicine on January the 4th, 2024. Funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. at Our Savior's Lutheran Church on Wednesday, January the 10th, 2024. Visitation will be during the hour prior to the service. Interment will, with military honors will be in the Memorial Park Cemetery. Memorials are suggested to Our Savior's Lutheran Church. Next, we remember Eve Ellen Forney Fellows, age 82 of Council Bluffs, who died January the 3rd, 2024. Memorial services will be held at 2 p.m. Saturday, January the 13th, 2024, at the Marshall Funeral Chapel in Tabor, Iowa. Visitation with the family greeting friends will be from 1.30 p.m. until service time on Saturday. Interment of ashes in the Tabor Cemetery. Memorials will go to the Nebraska Humane Society. The Marshall Funeral Home Funeral Chapel in Tabor is in charge of arrangements. Now we remember Orville R. Blue, age 76, who passed away peacefully at Douglas County Health Center on January the 5th, 2024. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Thursday, January the 11th, 2024. Funeral service will be held at 10 a.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Friday, January the 12th, 2024. Interment will be in the Garner Township Cemetery. The family will direct memorials. Next, we remember Janet Dawn Kaburik, who passed away peacefully at home on Tuesday, January the 2nd, 2024, at the age of 76 in Mount Dora, Florida. A small service for the family will be held later in Council Bluffs, Iowa. In lieu of flowers, please consider a donation to Hearts United for Animals in Auburn, Nebraska, https colon slash slash hua dot org. It was a cause dear to Janet's heart. Now we remember Margaret E. Marbs, age 75, of Council Bluffs, who passed away December the 10th, 2023, at Jenny Edmondson Hospital. A celebration of life will be held Sunday, January 14, 2024, from noon to 4 p.m. at Toby Jack's Mineola Steakhouse, 408 Main Street, Mineola, Iowa. And finally, we remember Kenneth C. Hunt, age 80, who passed away at his home on January the 5th, 2024. Visitation will be held from 12 to 1 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Wednesday, January the 10th, 2024. Funeral service will be held at 1 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Wednesday, the January the 10th, 2024. Interment is in Memorial Park Cemetery. The family will direct memorials. In weather-related news, snow emergencies still remain in effect. The City of Council Bluffs is under a snow emergency until 5 p.m. Tuesday. 
The city's declaration means no parking is allowed on all streets posted as emergency snow routes, which are marked with blue emergency snow route signs. Cars parked on designated routes are subject to a fine or towing at the owner's expense. The city also canceled the planned meeting of the city council for Monday night. It was rescheduled for Monday, January the 15th with the study session at 3.30 p.m. and the meeting at 4 p.m. The Pottawatomie County Secondary Roads Department announced a snow emergency will be in effect through 2 p.m. Wednesday. The county said vehicles cannot park on or along any public county roadway. Our operations will be most effective as the accumulation and winds subside and visibility is restored, the county said in a news release Monday afternoon. Depending on storm severity, the cleanup may take up to 48 hours after the storm subsides. Underwood also declared a snow emergency until 5 p.m. Tuesday. And weather may weather disrupting campaign plans. This is written by Tom Barton. Heavy snowfall and dangerous travel conditions were expected Tuesday, followed by frigid temperatures that could drift snow drift below zero by caucus day. Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor and former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, cancels a visit to Sioux City due to snow. Inclement weather prevented Nikki Haley from getting to and from the event in Sioux City. She is here in Iowa through caucus day, and we will be back in northwest Iowa on Friday, campaign spokesman Pat Garrett said. Speaking to Iowa reporters virtually on Monday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said his campaign still expects a large turnout of supporters. I think they're still motivated to come in and meet and hear from the candidates, and so we're going to have a full schedule, do whatever we can do, DeSantis, who said, who was in Florida. DeSantis was scheduled to fly back to Iowa on Tuesday, weather permitting. On Wednesday, he and Haley are set to participate in a CNN debate at Drake University, while Donald Trump is also in Des Moines. And Iowa GOP chairman says weather may impact turnout. This comes from Katie Obradovich of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Republican Party of Iowa Jeff Kaufman said Monday he expects a robust turnout at the 2024 Iowa caucuses despite the first blast of winter bearing down on the state a week before the event. However, Kaufman said the weather could get in the way of breaking the 2016 record of 186,000 caucus participants. Weather could prevent a record-breaking turnout, but Iowa could still have a great turnout, he said. Kaufman spoke to reporters after the Republican Party of Iowa's legislative breakfast at the Hilton Hotel in Des Moines. The January 15th Iowa Republican caucuses are the nation's first presidential nominating event for the 2024 election. Eligible voters must attend in person to participate. In 2016, Kaufman said he began to suspect a record turnout was likely on the morning of the caucuses when the party received a huge volume of calls from first-time caucus goers asking for instructions on how to participate. This feels, I mean, the passion, the anecdotal emotion, it feels a little bit like 2016, he said. Caucus goers must be registered as Republicans to participate, but they can register to vote at their caucus, and Democrats and Independents can change their registration on caucus night in order to qualify. The Iowa Democratic Party will also hold caucuses on January the 15th, but presidential preference will be registered only by mail-in ballot. Usually both parties hold their caucuses on the same night. That changed this year when the Democratic National Committee stripped Iowa of its first-in-the-nation status. 
Kaufman threatened Democrats with prosecution if they attempt to vote in both the Republican and Democratic caucuses. He noted Iowa now has a Republican Attorney General. It is against the law, and she will prosecute, I believe, if someone participates in the GOP caucus and also mails in a Democratic ballot, he said. If a Democrat attempts to do that and participate in both, that's against the law, and we're going to be monitoring that very, very carefully. He said there has been talk in the past about Democrats attempting to influence the GOP caucus, but he has not heard of any significant organized effort to do that this cycle. I don't see anything, and I think I would. Any effort that has dollars behind it has massive people calling that, he said. Now it's time to turn to the sports page, and the top story is entitled, How Grubb Went From Iowa Hog Farmer to Huskies Offensive Coordinator. It's written by Mike Burrell of the Seattle Times. Editor's note, this story about Kingsley, Iowa native Ryan Grubb was originally published in the Seattle Times on March 31st. Grubb, the architect of the University of Washington's high-powered offense, will be in his customary spot in a skybox booth when the undefeated Huskies play for a national championship against Michigan on Monday night at NRG Stadium in Houston. The farmer woke early and worked late. He understood that growth was gradual, success took time. For nearly seven years, he operated a hog farm in northwest Iowa. He utilized the rugged physicality formed through college football, playing multiple positions, fullback, tailback, stand-up tight end, for the nearby Buena Vista Beavers. After graduating with a business administration degree in 1999, he traded football for the family business, tending to the hogs, purchasing grains, negotiating with banks and buyers. He noted that I grew up on a farm, my dad grew up on a farm, his dad grew up on a farm, etc., etc. For a kid from Kingsley, Iowa, a town of 1,411 with the motto, Some Bigger, None Better, this was a profitable, often predestined path. The etc. were infinite. For Ryan Grubb, the University of Washington's coveted offensive coordinator, it was a career, but not a calling. Being an athlete, there's something entrenched in you to compete and be your best and be part of a team. Every year you don't do that, you almost feel a little piece of you die, Grubb said. I worked for really good people. It was a great job. I got paid well, but I didn't feel like I had the purpose I wanted to have. My head coach at Buena Vista, Joe Hadachek, would tell me, leadership is influence. I felt like that's what I was wasting, honestly. It's not that I didn't have a good life, but I was wasting a talent that I believed I was given and needed to keep cultivating. So while maintaining the farm, Grubb pursued other paths. He took night classes at Western Iowa Tech Community College, eventually earning EMT-B certification. He hoped to become a firefighter, or maybe a football coach. In 2003, five years after finishing his final season at Division III Buena Vista, Grubb joined the staff at his other alma mater, Kingsley Pearson High. And even while juggling pigs and pigskins as the Panthers' part-time offensive coordinator, he was an immediate upgrade. My first year, I called the plays offensively, and my defensive guys called the defense, said former KP head coach Greg Schoon, who arrived the previous season. As soon as he got on staff, I'm like, you're calling the offense, and I called the defense, because my other assistants were wrestling coaches. Indeed, the hog farmer and former high school wrestler cultivated competition. 
Eric Sitzman, a fullback and linebacker at KP in 2003, said Grubb always showed up. He was always on. Very positive attitude, really intense. He was really good at relating to all these young players, especially in small-town Iowa. It's not like you're getting five-star kids out of there. He always found ways to relate and to coach you up in a way that you could understand. Exhibit A, the index cards. Before Friday games, Grubb wrote notes for each of his players, often repeating play calls or offering morsels of motivation, and left them in their lockers. It wasn't a practice pilfered from a previous coach, and really, that's the point. It just felt like maybe I wasn't pushed hard enough at times as an athlete, said Grubb, now age 47, so I was always trying to find ways to get people to be their best and connect with them and push them. I didn't have it all necessarily articulated in my head, but I knew everybody had more than they thought they did. Recalled Sitzman, who entered the Marine Corps after graduating, there was a particular play we ran a lot, I write 31 trap. He'd write that in there at some point most weeks, just getting me mentally in the game before we even started. Behind Sitzman, All-State running back Nick Kuchel and offensive tackle Nate Koskovich the Panthers improved from 3-6 and six in 2003 to 7-2 in Grubb's second season. They did so by running the football 90-plus percent of the time. In 2004, a headset-wearing hog farmer and index card enthusiast was named Class A District 8 Assistant Coach of the Year. After nearly seven years on the farm and two moonlighting at his alma mater, Grubb accepted a graduate assistant position at South Dakota State in 2005. He left one path to pursue his purpose. That's where my love really came from, Grubb said of his time at KP's offensive coordinator. At that point, the chase was on. I didn't care about money. I didn't care about anything like that. I just wanted to coach at the best place I could and get to the highest level possible. He spent two seasons at South Dakota State, first overseeing the running backs, then the wide receivers. He said, I was going all, I was doing all the grunt work that GAs do, but in addition to that, I ran my own room. I ran meetings. I recruited an area in Minnesota. So it was huge. It was a big time crash course in being a college football coach. Granted, the 29 year old Grubb had areas to improve, but he understood that growth is gradual. Success takes time. Where others faded, he cultivated. Ryan came in, yes, not necessarily knowing a lot, but a sponge, a servant, said John Stegelmeyer, who retired in January 2023 after 26 seasons as the Jack Rabbits coach. I don't know if I've been around a graduate assistant with a better attitude and a servant heart. His humility was beyond explanation. When you're paying your dues, a lot of people grind through that. Ryan skipped through it. He embraced it. I would say some of it is his farm background, having that type of work ethic and that focus to finish the job. By May of the year 2007, one job was finished, and as Grubb graduated from South Dakota State University with a master's degree in sports pedagogy, the search for his first full-time coaching gig presented contrasting paths. There was a possible job, and I won't name what it was or where it was because it was a bad experience, Grubb recalled. I could tell it was not a good place. They were a losing football team with a bad culture that started at the top. So I get back and I see Stigmeyer, and I'm like, Stig, I've got no other prospects right now. This is it. He was like, if you don't believe in this guy, don't do it. He didn't. So he didn't. 
and everything goes silent, Grubb continued. So I move into my sister's spare bedroom back in Sioux City and I start pouring concrete. I've got two degrees and here I am pouring mud, just trying to pay the bills. For two plus months, Grubb poured mud, called coaches, and repeated the process until prioritizing people paid dividends. Following a night shift in July 2007, Grubb got a call from John Anderson, a former Buena Vista teammate turned Sioux Falls assistant coach. In South Dakota, the Cougars had just earned their second NAIA national championship under a 32-year-old second-year head coach named Kalen DeBoer. Grubb was offered $2,700 for the season to coach the Cougar offensive line. I was like, I'll take it, he recalled, because I knew Kalen and he was a winner. He was a good dude. The farmer wakes early and works late. He understands that growth is gradual. Success takes time, as does the football coach. Whether you're building your farm in terms of acres and machinery, or you're building your football program, you don't build it overnight. You don't sustain it overnight, said Stiglmeyer, who grew up in a farming family. True success is to look back over 10 or 20 years and say, yes, I'm proud of what we did. Over 20 years after accepting a part-time position at Kingsley Pearson, Grubb has done his share. He spent seven seasons at Sioux Falls, first as the offensive line coach and run game coordinator, then offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. He reunited with DeBoer as Eastern Michigan's offensive line coach in 2014 before following him to Fresno State three years later. And then DeBoer was appointed head coach in 2020. Grubb excelled as his offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, first in Fresno, California, then again at Washington. Together, that pair overhauled the Husky Husky offense in the 2022 season, ranking first in the nation in passing, first downs and third down percentage, second in total offense, and seventh in scoring in an 11-2 turnaround. Grubb received a pair of raises in the offseason with his salary reaching $2 million annually. In girls basketball, Saints suffocate Cyclones for Hawk 10 conference lead. Class 1A number 6 St. Albert put themselves in the driver's seat of the Hawkeye 10 conference as they defeated Class 3A number 7 Harlan 64-51 on Friday night in Council Bluffs. We definitely had this one marked on the calendar after the first loss, Saints coach Dick Wettengell said. Losses teach you a lot, and I thought we did a great job of learning from that game and how to better defend them. The girls did a great job with the game plan, and that's a very good team. I'm very proud of our kids' effort and how they executed. The teams traded runs and leads in a high-scoring first quarter as the Saints made the first move with a 7-0 to take a 17th. 10 lead midway through the first. The Cyclones countered with an 8-0 run to close the gap before the teams traded some more baskets. The Cyclones began another run as the Saints' offense went cold for the majority of the second quarter. A 12-3 run put the Cyclones up 32-24 in the final minute of the quarter, but Ella Klusman pulled the Saints back within a possession as she hit a 3 and got a steal and score in the final 30 seconds of the half. We always say the first three minutes of the second half are very important, Klusman said. We felt some momentum shift after that little run and acted on that and came out strong in the second half. The Saints used the five points to spark a 12-2 run to put themselves ahead midway through the third quarter, but the Cyclones kept hanging around as the Saints only held a two-point advantage after three quarters. 
A big part of building the lead was the inside presence of Ava Underwood, who stepped in a big way after some teammates found themselves in foul trouble. Sometimes you get in the paint and it's easy to get in foul trouble, Underwood said. It's great to know we have all our teammates supporting us, and I knew that we had to do and wasn't always easy, but with the teammates I have here, we found a way. But the Saints buckled down on the Cyclones, going on a 14-3 run and allowing just seven total points in the final quarter to pull away with the win and avenge their only loss of the season. Everyone would say it always feels great to beat Harlan, Klusman said. They're always a really good team and athletic. We knew, especially after our last game, it wasn't going to be easy, but we were preparing all week for this game, and after practicing through some of the plays, we knew they would run. It really prepared us to beat them this time. It's just nice to see all the hard work pay off, Underwood added. Good defense creates offense, and once we got our defense rolling, our offense got going. The Saints, riding a nine-game win streak, now turn their focus toward another strong opponent in Class 2A number 8 Nottaway Valley on the road. Sitting atop of a strong Hawkeye 10 conference is one thing, but maintaining their rank isn't the only challenge that lies ahead. The Saints and Wolverines will tip off on Tuesday at 6 p.m. In boys basketball, Cyclones escape laced surge from Falcons. Friday night scores. Basketball is a game of runs, and a late one from St. Albert fell short as Harlan handed the Falcons their fifth loss in six games. The Cyclones beat the Falcons 69-65 on Friday night in Council Bluffs. We knew Harlan's size was going to be an issue for us at times. It was, Falcons coach Larry Peterson said. I'm incredibly proud of our boys. We hung in there and did everything that we asked them to do, but just couldn't hit a couple of shots. The Falcons fell behind 8-3 early in the first, but flew ahead with a 17-5 run, fueled by four threes to take a 20-12 lead to end the first quarter. The threes kept falling for the Falcons in the second early on, but cooled off in the second quarter, and the Cyclones took advantage with a run that put them up by a deuce at the break. The Cyclones started the second half with a 9-2 run to take a 43-34 lead. The Falcons responded with a 16-6 spurt that briefly put them in front 50-49 late in the third quarter, but the Cyclones scored the last three points of the quarter and used that to spark a 13-0 run that had them up by a dozen with about five and a half minutes left to play. The Falcons, with one last gasp, chipped away the Cyclones' lead with a 15-5 run that made it 66-65 with 21 seconds to go, but could could not sink the one more shot to complete the comeback. Though the Falcons came up short, Peterson was proud of the effort his guys gave and believes if they play with his same effort through this second half of the season, the Falcons will be just fine. When they went up 11 on us, they could have let it slip to a 20-point game, but we battled back again and again, Peterson said. I can't ask more from these guys, though. I firmly believe if we play like we did here with that effort, I think we're set to make a good second half run here this season. The Hawkeye 10 is always a grind. There are no easy outs, but if we bring that effort, we'll be fine and we can go on a run. Nick Ballinger led the Falcons with 25 points on the night. Owen Marshall scored 14 and Jeremiah Sherrill had 13 in the close defeat. St. Albert will play again on Monday when they host Woodbine for a 7 p.m. game. In other boys' high school basketball games, Lewis Central defeated Clarinda 76-32, Tri-Center 66, AHSTW 60 in double overtime, 
Glenwood 67, Shenandoah 48, Logan Mangolia beat Riverside 60-57 in overtime. On Saturday, Thomas Jefferson 86, Mount Michael Benedictine from Nebraska 60, and Trainer 74, Grandview Christian 60. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, January the 9th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.